Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Today we're going to talk about the fall of Adam and Eve. Welcome back to the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. If you ever want to email me, you can do so, doctrine4, that's the number 4, doxology at gmail.com, and I'm on Instagram at the Real Bear Martin. So today we're going to be mainly talking about Genesis 2 and 3, so the, the creation of man through the, the fall of man and the punishment that's placed on on the serpent, the woman, and the man. So that's in Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, right off the bat, this is historical fact. The rest of the Bible assumes that it is historical fact, and so there are people that think this is just an allegory or a myth, and if you hold that view, then you are going to be in disagreement with the rest of the Bible. So this is historical fact. Now also, these two chapters, there is a chiasm. It's, it's a chiastic structure. When I say that word, it's spelled C-H-I-A-S-M for chiasm, and then, and then you can figure out how to spell chiastic. Uh, this is a very common structure throughout the Bible, and the way it works is the first thing mentioned will be correlated to the last thing mentioned in the story, and then the second thing mentioned is going to be correlated to the second to last thing mentioned in the story, and so forth. And then in the very center is that there's a central theme, typically, to this chiastic structure. So let me give you the the outline. Most of you are probably familiar with Genesis 2 and 3. So, for instance, man is created and then placed in the garden to work and to keep it. At the end of the story, in Genesis 2 and 3, at the end of the story, man is kicked out of the garden and he no longer is the keeper or the guardian of the garden. Rather, the cherubim now guard the entrance to the garden. Okay, and so that's the the first and the last point. Now, the second point and the second to last point is going to talk about woman. So we hear about woman being created as a helper. She's made from man's side. And then the second to last feature are the punishments placed on the woman. Inside of that, we, we are introduced to the serpent. Then after sin, which is the central theme of this chiastic structure, that's the central point, after sin, we first read about the curse that's placed on the serpent. So that's the the structure there. Hopefully you can see that. it's The man is the first mentioned and the last mentioned. The woman is the second mentioned and the second to last mentioned. And so if you just look at the passage, you can see that structure, and that's a very common structure there. So there's a lot of things that I'm not going to mention today with the the fall account. There's just a, a few highlights that I want to make, basically. Uh, first, I want to talk about sin specifically. I think John Frame, he's a theologian. He's written a really large—well, he's written a ton of stuff, but there's a really large systematic theology book that I own uh, that's written by him, and he has a really good way of thinking about sin. Now, to to contrast this, when when he's explaining it, he says, okay, for this for something to be considered a perfectly righteous good act, okay, it must follow the proper standard, the right standard, 
it must have the proper goal and it needs to have the right motive. So standard, goal, and motive. So the standard would be God's law. The goal would be God's glory. And then the motive for someone who's doing a a righteous good deed, if it's truly considered righteous, the motive would be out of faith or belief in God, also out of love for God. Okay, so the standard is God's law, the goal is for God's glory, and the motive is faith or belief in God, also a love for God. So when we when we think about that is what the requirements are for something to be considered a righteous good deed, then anything that fails in any of those three points could can be thought of as sin. See, an, an atheist can basically never do anything good. I'm using the the uh, air quotes here, a good atheist, even even though the world would consider that atheist a good person, he may be accidentally obeying the standard, God's law, although he wouldn't call it God's law, um, but he's certainly not doing things for God's glory. That's not his goal, and he's not motivated by, by belief in God or a love for God. Okay, so he so nothing that this atheist does is a righteous or good deed. And so sin is a is a failure in any of those three points. So how did Adam and Eve's sin break these requirements? Well, first of all, they disobeyed the standard. God's standard, his law for Adam and Eve was you can eat of any tree in the garden, but do not eat from the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil. So they disobeyed God's law. That was the standard. Also, their goal was wrong. They desired to be like God. This is for their own self-glorification instead of their goal being the glory of God. And then their motive, they were motivated by unbelief. This was a, a lack of faith in God's word. God told them, you will, if you eat of this, you will surely die. They started to doubt that. They started to doubt God's goodness. So this is not motivated by a faith or a belief in the truth of God's word. So that's how that's just one way to think about sin. Those three uh, those three standards there, or those three points, standard, goal, and motive. And so we can see how that breaks down in the sin of Adam and Eve. And if you evaluate sin in your own life, you can you can see that as well. Now, the next little highlight I want to make here is that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed before we start reading of the fall. Okay, so at the very end of Genesis 2, verse 25, they they are married, so God has made woman from man's side. God brings the woman to man, and then they are married because in verse 25 it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So that's the very last verse of chapter 2, and the, and the, the next verse we are introduced to to the serpent. Now certainly after Adam and Eve's sin, they are aware of their nakedness and and this idea of shame is implied. So they're naked and not ashamed in verse 225 and then later down in verse 3 uh chapter 3 verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So uh, certainly this idea of being naked or exposed uh, can be thought of as, as bringing on shame. And so the, there's two ways to deal with shame. 
And that would one would be to try to cover it up. And number two, the second way to deal with shame is to try to decrease or numb the feeling of shame. Ba- basically, try to numb the guilt or t- take away the guilt uh, and, and that comes with shame. So the world deals with shame one way. Christians deal with the, the guilt and, and shame of sin in a different way. The world will try to cover themselves. They they are not interested in doing things God's way. They're not interested in God's cover for shame. Uh, rather, they will try to do it themselves. Adam and Eve, they made fig leaf, clothes of, of fig leaves for themselves. They're trying to cover it themselves. And then, you know, when we think about the way people try to cover their shame today it's it's oftentimes seen with possessions and different different things to to hide uh, their true self from the world that they they surround themselves with uh, with you know nice cars or nice clothes or whatever and and sometimes I'm not saying having nice clothes is, is a bad thing I'm saying sometimes uh, people will try to use that type of stuff in a way of of guarding against or, or covering uh, their own shame. The other way to do to to deal with shame from the world's perspective is to try to decrease the feeling of shame or numb the feeling of shame. Uh, this can think about alcohol. Typically, uh, people are not going to go streaking through the center of a college you know campus. But you throw some alcohol in there, and their shame level, their their naked awareness level decreases, the clothes start to come off, and then you're doing stuff that will bring shame later on, uh, but certainly in that intoxicated state, there, your your shame level has been numbed or decreased. So that's a way of dealing with that. Drugs, the same way. It, it numbs the pain, uh, so to speak. And so sometimes people resort to those types of things. Uh, sexual pleasure um, outside of marriage can be used to. That's the wrong way. That's the way the world would deal with uh, with numbing shame. So they they glorify fornication. They glorify homosexuality. Let's all get together for a big pride march. And there are there's you know so that's a way to decrease shame. Let's bring every if we can get everybody else to affirm sinful activity, then there's not going to be that guilt and that tension of going against God's created order. And so that's that's another way that the world will try to deal with shame. Now, Satan's Satan's offers for dealing with shame, they are only temporary relief. All these things I've mentioned, they are temporary relief from nakedness or shame. Uh, however, it's temporary, and it also, as you partake in these things, it actually only it only serves to increase the total amount of guilt and shame uh, in your life. So that's the way the world will try to deal with shame, and that brings more and more problems. Now, the way Christians deal with the shame and guilt of sin is Christians trust in the covering. We cover our shame, so to speak, in the covering that God has provided. So God is the one who made the animal skins for Adam and Eve. God's way was the proper covering. This took a sacrifice of an innocent animal, and certainly this sacrifice to cover their their nakedness and their shame and their, and their sin, that is going to point us to Jesus Christ, our, the, the ultimate sacrifice, the true sacrifice for sin. 
So that's how how Christians are. Their shame is covered. How do Christians, um, you know, numb or decrease this feeling of shame? How how do we get rid of this shame or guilt for sin? Well, certainly confession and repentance. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we we as we confess our sin to God, the Holy Spirit works in our heart, and and there there's a cleansing that takes place. That's how we we should be seeking to deal with guilt and shame in our life. Also, we have to see ourselves as Christ sees us. So the church, we are called the bride of Christ. So the husband and wife, the the Bible tells us in several places that the husband and wife, the, the marriage there, that's a picture of Christ and the church. And so just as a wife should stand before her husband and can stand before her husband. This this is assuming it's is a healthy relationship. Um, the wife can stand before her husband naked and not feel shame. The husband calls her beautiful, and so the, that's the way Jesus Christ sees his bride, the church. Now we are not beautiful in our own goodness and our in our own specialness. We are beautiful because of the the righteousness and the perfection that has been given to us. So I, I I think that the obvious um, the obvious point that is being that is being made here in Genesis two and three about the husband and wife being naked and unashamed, and then once they sin and eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, now their eyes are open and they realize that they're naked and they seek to clothe themselves. Okay, so I I think that. The, the concept, the theme of shame there is certainly one that we want to mention. But I do think that something else is going on here that needs to be addressed, and, and a lot of people uh, skip over it or don't think about it. And so that's so now I want to think about when the Bible says that they are naked and unashamed. I do let me just be very clear. I, I am not saying that that is bad. I'm not saying it's bad or that it's not good, okay? Uh, because certainly God, when he created man and woman, uh, everything in in God's creation, he says, is good. The only thing he said is not good is that there's no helper for man, but then he makes man's helper. So everything is good. So I'm not saying that them being uh, naked and unashamed is bad, but what I am saying is that they are not, that's not the final end goal of man and woman for for God. I'm, that, I'm that's not the final product. That's the argument that I'm making. So when the Bible says that they were naked and they were unashamed, um, there's I think that it's it's trying to tell us there's more to the story. Something needs to happen so that they gain clothing, and and so it's it's kind of like foreshadowing in the story. They're naked and unashamed. Okay, as the reader, you're going, okay, what's what's happening next? Now, so so what I'm saying is when they're naked and unashamed, that's not the final product. I think that eventually they are supposed to have clothing. Now, I'm not saying they need to sin to get clothing, but I think wearing a robe and clothing would be would be something that would happen in the future as they have dominion over the world, okay? And so just think about this, when we when 
when God, who's King of kings and Lord of lords, and Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, they are to have dominion, they are to rule over the world just like God rules over the whole universe. God, when when thinking about or when his, his royalty, his kingness, if you will, is described, he is described as having a robe. The Lord has a robe. Isaiah 6, 1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So in the Bible, when people are people wear robes, sometimes that is that's indicating a kingly authority, a, a kingly rule. And so as Adam and Eve are going to rule the world, they will eventually get to the point where they will have clothing. And and this is a a symbol of uh, authority and power. Okay, so you may be thinking, I am not seeing that here at all. Just hang with me, all right? They're in an article called Illumination and Investiture, the Royal Significance of the Tree of Wisdom in Genesis 3. Uh, William Wilder is a theologian. He says this, quote, Within the ancient Near Near Eastern, and particularly the biblical context, nakedness was an undesirable condition for human beings. As we shall see, the nakedness of Adam and Eve at the end of Genesis 2 poses a strong, if implied, question for the ancient reader. Not whether, but when and how will Adam and Eve be clothed? So I think an, a concept, along with the idea of being naked and unashamed, they're they're naked and they are they're vulnerable in a sense. They are uh, they they haven't they don't have um, they're not aware of of some weaknesses. Okay, so this concept comes from Genesis forty-two nine. Joseph is kind of testing his brothers. They've sold him into slavery. Now he's second in command in Egypt, and they come to the land for food. They do not know that they're speaking to their brother Joseph at this point, and he's testing them, and he's accusing them of being spies. He says, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And so being naked, you are open to uh, to problems. So these spies are coming to see the nakedness of the land. Where are the weaknesses? All right, so if we're thinking about nakedness in that way, let's go back to our story in Genesis 2 and 3. So again, in the last verse of Genesis 2, we are told that the man and his wife are naked and unashamed. In the very next verse... We're told that the serpent is crafty or prudent or shrewd, okay? Uh, The ESV version says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, I do not read Hebrew, but in several different commentaries that are read, they pointed out that the word for naked and the word for crafty are very similar sounding in Hebrew. And so it's it's kind of like a play on words that that is picked up in Hebrew. So this word crafty. Now the serpent was more crafty. We automatically think of the serpent in a negative context because we know the rest of the story. But if you're reading this for the first time, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. That same word in Hebrew is translated wise, prudent, uh, discerning, 
shrewd, okay? So let me give you a, a verse here, Proverbs 14, 15, the same word is used. It says this, and, and think about this verse in the context of the fall of Adam and Eve. It says, the simple believes everything, but the prudent, that, again, that's the same word that's translated crafty about the serpent, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus' word wise there in the Greek language is the same Greek word that is used in the Septuagint to describe the serpent being crafty or wise. So so when, when the Hebrew is translated into Greek, they use the same word for wise. So the serpent was more crafty, was, was more wise than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And again, that word is linked somehow in the, in the way that the Hebrew sounds to this word for naked. When we read after the Adam and Eve sin and we read the word naked in Genesis 3-7, it is actually spelled different. It's, it starts with a, a different vowel. And so there's, there's something going on here. When Moses is writing this, he's, it's like he's using this little play on words to, to put together a theme. Again, this is not uh, something that I just discovered on my own. This is something that I read in several different commentaries and, and different articles. Um, and so you can, the, the two main ones that I used for this um, is, uh, they're in the episode notes if you want to look at those and, and read further. Um, anyway, so I think what's going on here with this idea of man and woman being naked, yes, there is a, a they were unashamed because they had never sinned, and after they sin, yes, there's a shame that comes with their nakedness, but also when they acquire the knowledge of good and evil, when they eat the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they acquire what that fruit gave them, they want to cover themselves. And I think it's it has to do with the the type of wisdom that they now have. Okay, so hang with me. So now we need to talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What is that? Well, in Genesis three six, when Eve is is looking at the tree, it says, "So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one." wise. So this tree, she somehow Eve knows that if I eat of this fruit, I will have a wisdom that I currently do not have right now. It's it's I desire this to be wise in a, in a way that her and Adam do not possess right now. So uh, the the tree of knowledge of good and evil, I do think this is related to wisdom somehow. And so if we were going to try to figure out what this phrase means, how would you go about doing that? Well, the answer, I've mentioned it several times over the the course of this podcast, different episodes, that Scripture interprets Scripture. The first thing, when you come across a difficult verse or a difficult phrase in the Bible, the first thing you need to do is to look and see if that phrase or concepts like it are used in the Bible and use that to, to gain a better understanding of what this is. So with the tree of knowledge of good and evil is this phrase, knowledge of good and evil, or something like that, used other places in Scripture? It certainly is. Let me give you some examples. In Deuteronomy 139, 
Moses is talking to the to the Israelites, the adult Israelites that came out of the land of Egypt. They did not believe the or they they did not believe that the Lord would deliver the promised land over to them. Remember, they sent twelve spies. Ten spies gave a negative report, said there's giants in the land. We'll we'll be killed, all of us. Okay, and so the the people get scared. They don't believe that the Lord will deliver them, and so their punishment is that they will wander in the wilderness and they will eventually not be able to enter the promised land, but their children will. Okay, so that's what Moses is talking about here in Deuteronomy 139. It says this, And as for your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So the children who have no knowledge of good or evil, those are the children that will go in and possess the promised land. In Isaiah 7, 15, and 16, this again is talking about a child. What's happening here in the context is the king of Judah, Ahaz, is worried because Syria and the the northern tribes, Israel, so, so Israel, the nation of Israel is split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom is sometimes it's referred to as Israel, okay? So Israel, the northern kingdom, is teaming up with Syria and they are going to wage war on Judah. So the king of Judah is worried about this, but he's given a prophecy. And it says in Isaiah 7, 15, and 16, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So this prophecy is speaking of, but there's going to be a, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and before this boy is old enough to have the knowledge of good and evil, these these two kingdoms will be away from you. They will not be waging war anymore on you. So that's the, the prophecy there. Again, this knowledge of good and evil has to do with some sort of uh, adult wisdom. Children don't possess this, okay? The last verse I want to mention is King Solomon. So this is when Solomon has just recently inherited his father David's throne. So now he's he's king over all of Israel. And he says this, 1 Kings 3, verses 7 through 9. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. Now at the time when he takes over, he's not a child, Okay. Um, but he says, basically, he feels like a little child having this responsibility and uh, and of running a, a kingdom and not knowing what to do. Continuing on with the verse, he says, I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? All right, so Solomon, everybody knows this, Solomon asked for wisdom, okay? He need, he wants discernment between good and evil. Now, little kids know basic, very basic right and wrong. They can follow very basic instructions. A two-year-old can follow instructions. This is the type of basic instruction that Adam and Eve were 
also very capable of following. I'm not saying they were babies in the garden, uh, but God says, don't eat of this tree, the fruit from this tree. You can eat any other tree. This is very simple instructions. So Adam and Eve, what they lacked was the knowledge of good and evil. They they lacked a, a, a deeper level of wisdom and discernment, a type of wisdom that comes that that kings need to have, okay? And so this is a, a deeper uh, deeper type of wisdom. And so here's what I think is is supposed to happen. Adam and Eve are supposed to obey the simple commands of God. And as they do, they will grow in wisdom and eventually get to the point where they will have the knowledge of good and evil as they've obeyed the Lord. So they're supposed to do things the Lord's way, and in their sin, they wanted that ability. They wanted to decide for themselves uh, good and evil. They, they wanted to decide right and wrong. They wanted that outside of God's order, outside of the way that God had, had uh, designed things to work. And so they reach for the fruit, and by partaking of that, that's actually what's happening. Now, the Lord says that they are, you know, the, the Lord says they are like me. Man is like me, knowing good and evil. So this, this is something that they gained by eating of the fruit, but they, they did it in the wrong order. And so that's, that's the problem there, okay? So that's essentially what I'm saying here when with the sin, I mean, certainly the sin was simple disobedience and pride. They wanted to be like God. But on a little bit deeper level, what's happening here is they want this kingly wisdom. And certainly they're going to need that. They're, they're commanded by God to have dominion and fill the earth, okay? But they're supposed to develop this by obedience to the simple commands of God, and the wisdom will come. They stepped outside of that, and that's the the problem, okay? So let me give you a quote here, again, by William Wilder. Wilder, William Wilder. Whew, that is a tongue twister. Um, again, the article is Illumination and Investiture, okay? The Royal Significance of the Tree of Wisdom in Genesis 3. He says, quote, This understanding of wisdom should make it clear that there is no reason to think that the knowledge of good and evil was wrong in and of itself. On the contrary, wisdom belongs to kings, not least to those intended from the moment of their creation to be images of God, ruling as God's vice-regents over the earth. Okay? But again, by eating the tree, they were claiming that, that they were claiming this wisdom outside of the way God intended them to develop it. Okay, and so in in that sense, uh, Victor Hamilton, another uh, he, he wrote a commentary on the Book of Genesis that I use a lot. He argues that the the knowledge of good and evil is is a type of moral autonomy. Okay, moral autonomy. Autonomy comes from from autonomos, which means self law or self governance, self rule. Okay, so so he is arguing that the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what Adam and Eve wanted is they wanted to be like God, of course, so they are the standard of what is good and what is evil. They are the standard of right and wrong. And so that's that's what he's arguing for. Let me give you a—he a, has a great quote on this as well. He says, "...whenever autonomy displaces submission and obedience in a person, that finite individual attempts to rise above the limitations imposed on him by his creator." 
What is forbidden to man is the power to decide for himself what is in his best interest and what is not. This is a decision God has not delegated to the earthling. This interpretation also has the benefit of according well with verse three, 20, uh, chapter 3, verse 22. The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Man has indeed become like God whenever he makes his own self the center, the springboard and the only frame of reference for moral guidelines. When man attempts to act autonomously, he is indeed attempting to be godlike." End quote. So it, we can think, think about this with the world. Again, the world compared to Christians. The world has a knowledge of good and evil, but that is all based on their own... Their, their, they, they believe that they themselves are the one who gets to determine what is good and what is evil. And we contrast that to the Christian. The Christian certainly has a knowledge of good and evil. This kingly wisdom, a mature Christian will have this type of knowledge. Again, that's a, it's a good thing to have, but it must be based on not our own uh our own standard, but on God's standard. So for the world, they simply want the knowledge of good and evil. I will determine what's right and what's wrong. I will, I'm king. I get to make the rules, and it's all based on my opinion. For the Christian, number one, we are to fear or obey God. And then, number two, we have the knowledge of good and evil. Our, uh, that, that knowledge, that wisdom is based on number one, that is, that we fear and obey God. This theme is all over the Bible. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So someone that prospers in everything they do, that is a person with kingly wisdom, with a knowledge of good and evil. They are able to make very smart decisions, okay? So this is discernment. This is a, a deeper wisdom that is needed in order to prosper in everything that you do. And how, how is that developed? By delighting in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 2, verses 10 and 11, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. So if you're a king, if you're in leadership, if you want this ability to have the knowledge of good and evil, if you want this discernment, it, the verse continues, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You, you don't do what Adam and Eve did and try to skip ahead. It all starts with obedience to God's word. And from that, that's how you develop true wisdom, okay? 2 Corinthians 10.5, this is the last verse I'll share on this topic. It says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is certainly what the Christian seeks to do. Every, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. And as you do that, you will naturally develop wisdom and discernment in this world. Now, 
that's that's like a that's a lot of stuff. Okay, that's a lot of stuff to to think about. But now I want to kind of put a little bow on it. Okay, so Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed, and then we read about this serpent who is prudent or wise or crafty. Okay, and so Adam and Eve need to develop a, a wisdom, and so they have the the one the the beast of the field that is the most wise, the most crafty, we're told that, comes to them and starts asking them questions. Now, what what we all wish they would have done, okay, and is that is that they would obey God. And as they obey God, and Adam should have said, no, you're not what you just said there, serpent, is a lie. You are lying about God and you are no longer welcome in this garden. And if we have to, we will fight to the death uh, because I am the keeper. I'm the guardian of this garden. And as they obey God's word, there would be wisdom and discernment that would would have been developed. Okay? So that's uh, that's something that's going on here. When they partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they are aware of their nakedness. And so what William Wilder is arguing here is that not only is there a shame now, because now they both, uh, they've grasped for this wisdom outside of God's commands, okay? So they each kind of now they're they're their own standard of wisdom. So they so they can no longer trust each other. Okay? They don't have the same standard anymore, which was God's word. They can't so they they're they're independent, so to speak. They can't trust each other. They're vulnerable. They realize they're they're naked. Um but also along with that when you have this kingly wisdom, you robe yourself in royal garments. You 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 now have this ability, and so that's that's the argument that William Wilder makes in this article. I can't go into all of the details there, uh, but that's 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 what I've been kind of trying to connect those to connect those dots. All right. Now think about it this way: when you compare the very end of the Bible. To the very beginning of the Bible, there are many similarities. So you have this paradise-like description of the Garden of Eden, and you certainly have that at the end of Revelation as well. There's there's a river, there's a tree of life, there's all these things that are similar to Genesis, but between Genesis and Revelation. But Christians are not naked and unashamed. Okay. So I again I would argue that's not the final goal. Rather, Christians are robed. And we are told in the Bible that we will one day reign with Christ. So God created us to be images, imagers of God and to have dominion. And eventually we will get there. We we reign with Christ and we are robed. Okay. And so uh William uh William Wilder says this. My objection to the modern presumption is not to deny that shame is important in Genesis 3 or that one of the functions of clothing after the fall is to cover Adam and Eve's shame. So certainly he agrees with that. But also it is it is to indicate rather that modern interpreters have so focused on the shame covering function of clothing that they generally miss what ancient interpreters took for granted, the use of clothing as a means of beauty, glory, and even royal majesty, end quote. 
So in the Bible, kings and rulers wear robes. I talked about how the Lord, is his robe fills the temple in Isaiah 6. In Revelation 19, 11 through 14, this is talking about Jesus. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Uh, Also in uh, Revelation 7, 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, or excuse me, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Now, if, if... it was so important, if it was God's final plan for us to be naked and unashamed, then that would be the perfect place to put it. We, we're all standing before the throne and before the Lamb, naked and unashamed. But rather, we are clothed in white robes with palm branches in our hands. So yes, our robes, we are robed in in white robes, and this is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So it certainly covers our shame and our guilt and our sin. This is a a God-given covering for us, but also we reign with Christ. These are royal robes, okay? And so as as we obey Christ, as we seek to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ, we gain wisdom. Ultimately, in our in our glorification, when we have a glorified body, we will have we will have wisdom where we are not struggling with sin anymore. We have we have learned um, and progressed to a certain point. God has sanctified us. The Holy Spirit has worked in us, and it, and will still work in us and sanctify us. So that we have this this wisdom, this discernment that God intended for man to develop by through or through obedience to Him. In Revelation 19:16, I'll close with this. This is talking again about Jesus. It says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Mm-hmm.